I'm hoping that this is. That looks. That seems a, a lot better. better. I just. I hate feeling like I'm five years old. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, my feet are on good. the ground. Thank Excellent. you. I know you don't have that problem, No, well, yeah, my, my problem is just the opposite problem. They give, <laughs> they give me cheers like that, and I kind of yeah. look like a scarecrow. <laughs> This is um, uh, speaking of faith. Oh, speaking of faith. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if Christine is doing it or someone <laughs> yeah. else. I'm so here. I don't know if she <coughs> always does it or. Oh, excellent. Oh, are they on? Okay, Eugene. Very good. All have right. Thanks. Well. Thanks for your help. All right. <coughs> I just had to get my chair shorter. Okay. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. Oh, hi. It's Krista Tippett. How are you doing? It's great to have you at the other end of the microphone. Thank you. Nice to hear from you, too. I'm just, I'm still just, uh, my chair was about a foot too high, so <laughs> yeah, I'm almost settled okay. in here. All right. All right. Um, I wonder if you've heard, you know, I don't know if you remember, I interviewed you a long time ago in 2002. Yeah, it must have been, it was, was it 2002? Yeah, it was pretty soon after September 11th. It was, a, it was for a program... A year after September 11th, but I actually think we did that interview maybe in the summer. Mm. So I'm hearing it. I'm hearing that echo. Yeah. Um, Dr. Matson, I think we may. I think your headphones may be turned up too high, and that's giving okay, my voice an echo. That. All right. How's that's that? Better. Does it sound better? That's great. Yeah. Well, I c- I'm actually, still I can hear a my one. M- Are you? Can you? My voice is echoing too. <coughs> um, could you turn down a little bit more? And we just turned ours down a bit. Okay, how uh, does that sound now? Um, let me just talk a minute. I think that's fine. Are you hearing it still, Mitch? No, it's gone. How, um, no, I'm still hearing a bit of it, aren't you? Yeah. It's not as loud, but... Yeah. Um, are you, uh, Dr. Manson, are you still hearing the echo on this end? No, it sounds fine to me. Is it possible for you to turn just a hair down more on your end? I'll try, okay. Krista, you talk. You yeah. still have to okay, be able to hear me, though. I, yeah, I how's think, that? I think that's fine. No, there's still... What is that, Mitch? That's not headphones, is it? Uh, it sounds to me like headphones. Um, um, do I need to be moving away? I, maybe I can see if the engineer has some different headphones. Okay. Okay, Mitch will call him. Um, and I don't know if you've heard any of the programs we've done... In the meantime, I've had lots of many Muslim voices on the show. Um, yeah, I've, I mean, d- d- driving around <laughs> city to city, you know, yeah. I'm sort of here every once in a while. I, okay. I, I hear it. Okay. Um, but congratulations on going national. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Well, I think when we, when we did the interview with you, we were a monthly program and, um, mm-hmm. and just getting going. and. And yeah, we do. We are in a different place now. So this will be heard by, you know, half a million people across okay, the country. Okay, here are my new headphones. Hold okay. on, let's <laughs> try this. <coughs> Okie dokie. Ooh, these are heavy. These are old ones. Yes. Aren't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they weigh about twenty pounds on my head. Okay. <laughs> See if your voice echoes. Okay. Um. Right. No, anything I'm for still public radio. I'm still hearing an echo. No. You know, let's see. No, I, I don't think I'm hearing I'm not hearing it now. Did you do something? You pushed a button? Okay. All right, we pushed how, the right how's button. That, how think, do we sound I think now? we're great. I think he okay. may need to hear you a little bit more. Tell me something mundane like what you had for breakfast. Oh, I don't know. What did I have for breakfast? I had a uh, flaky pastry that I brought back from Davos with me. <laughs> 
didn't get time to crack it open until this morning. So <laughs> Did you just get that? Uh, no. no, two weeks ago, but I didn't unpack until probably yesterday. So, <laughs> uh, what kind of butter did that flaky pastry have in it? <laughs> um, tons. It was. I think it was eighty percent butter. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I think we can start. And you know, when I, oh, and I'm still hearing that echo, Mitch. Can you? I don't know what that is. If I, it's only when I kind of speak up. All right, let me just move away from the microphone a little bit. No? Now I'm not hearing it. Okay. Um, did you hear that? Mm-hmm. No. No, I'm really hearing it. I mean, I usually don't. I'm sorry. We'll figure no, this okay. out. Hey, Mitch. He's, he's asking me something. Gene, is that you? Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't... I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull down the microphone fader completely. Uh, and, and can we... Uh, okay. Uh, and let's see what happens. All right. Check. Check. Yeah, I don't hear any echo now. You don't? No. Okay. I Great. mean, but it's... it's <coughs> now let me put well, you think I should live with it if there's a little one? Okay. All right. All right. Okay, I will just live with this. And actually, I'm not hearing it anymore. So, are you there? I, I'm here. Okay. Um, <coughs> you know, the great thing about this program is we get to, we, we have an entire hour and with you, and we get to have a real conversation. And I take that seriously. And, and where I'd really like to start is what's often a, the lead paragraph in articles about you. <clears throat> which is your conversion and your you know your love for islam and and the fact that you discovered that rather than being born into it and i I'd, I'd love to just re- actually spend a little bit of time hearing about that um about you know i've i've read the account of how you went to paris as a young woman and you met some west african friends and that was your introduction to islam but you know tell me what it was that you experienced there um, that really drew you and kind of led you down a path that very much changed your life. When I was in the uh, last year of my uh, college studies, my undergraduate studies, I went to Paris for the summer um, with my fine arts department to uh, take a film course. And uh, then I planned to spend the rest of the summer in Paris uh, riding my bike around, actually. I was a pretty avid cyclist. So I um, I really enjoyed that summer in Paris, and I was uh, watching a lot of film, mostly uh, um, my favorite filmmaker, Andrei Tarkovsky, hmm. uh, which is uh, someone who deals in symbolism and metaphor. My own spiritual state was one of um, really... Uh, Kind of, I would I would characterize it as an absence more than anything positive. I had no particularly negative feelings about religion, having left the Catholic Church at fifteen. Uh, but I certainly had no presence of any sort of spiritual 
feeling in my life other than through art. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, Paris is filled with art. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time by myself uh, in museums and, and in the theaters. And uh, for me, it was, you know, a very personal kind of, um, I wouldn't say lonely, but uh, individual experience uh, enjoying that art. And at that point uh, in Paris, I met some West Africans. And uh, I met these students actually at a uh, anti-racism concert that was being held outside um, outdoors all night long in Paris. It was a time of a lot of racist incidents in what, Paris. What, what were the years here? When was this? That would have been 85, I believe 1985, okay. mm-hmm. the summer of 85. And um, so I met these students and uh, befriended them. And when my, my course was over, I went and, and moved in in their student uh apartment building. It was a residence that West African governments had kind of chipped in for their students, and many of the apartments were empty in the summer. So they invited me to come stay there. And I spent a number of weeks with with these students, mostly from Senegal and Mauritania, uh, black West African students. And it was a real opening for me. These were uh, people who were far from home, um, quite impoverished, most of them uh, discriminated against in a very explicit way that I I hadn't experienced before in Mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet they were incredibly dignified, very generous, uh, self-confident without being arrogant, um, kind to the people around them, even those who did not treat them well. And uh, there was a spirit in them that I uh, found very attractive. And and I was drawn to them and wanted to be with them and to spend more time with them and understand what was the secret of this Hmm. uh, character that Hmm. was, to me, very different and profound. and so I spent time with them, and I found out that they were Muslim, but it wasn't something that they were, uh, they spoke about um, without me asking. Right. Um, they would respond to my questions, but they weren't, you know, preaching to me or even very obviously uh, observant and practicing, although they would, you know, some of them would go to a corner and pray at various times in the day. Mm. And but it was this low-key kind of spirituality right. that, that really uh, intrigued me. And, and you did come to feel that, that Islam um, was very much at the— I mean, not just, say, where they came from or mm, who they happened to be as individuals, but that their Muslim identity and background and practices really was at the heart of shaping those, those characteristics, those qualities of their humanity— Right. Well, as I got to know them more and they responded to my my questions and my probing on why they responded to things in a different way, they spoke to me uh, about their background, about their teaching, about what they believed. Um, I think looking back now, they were probably uh, associated with one of the major Sufi orders in Senegal oh, mm-hmm. that um, 
uh, is well known for emphasizing character development, sort of developing just a good personality and a good character right. and self-control, as well as being engaged in society in a, in a you know, compassionate way. Um, and I think they were probably involved in that, but they, they, they were uh, very low-key about it. And so it, it, it made me want to learn more and study more and see what, what the sources of, of uh, you know, the deep foundations of this spirituality were. And that's why I started reading the Qur'an on my own and studying the Qur'an. Um, again, more out of being intrigued about them Mm-hmm. then uh, at that point as uh, something for myself. Um, and tell me what you experienced, um, what you discovered in reading the Quran. When I started reading the Quran, and, and I have to say that what I was reading was more than anything a, a poor English translation of the meaning. <laughs> Which and doesn't really now, work at all, does it? <laughs> right. I mean, now, years later, knowing the Quran and having studied it in its recitation in the Arabic, uh, what astounds me is how the beauty of the message did come through to me in mm-hmm. that poor translation. Um, and it, it, it struck me really like a thunderbolt. I mean, suddenly bursting into my, my soul was this... Uh, Message and new awareness of of God that I really had thought that I could do without um, and hadn't given much of a second thought to for years and years. Um, this awakening of, I would say, an almost childlike wonderment at the you know beauty and, and glory of creation and the sense of majesty, the sense of the universe being pervaded with with meaning and purpose. And that's really what, what the Qur'an brought to me before anything. It was this awareness of God before it gave me any specific um, guidelines for how I should live my life as a Muslim. It was simply uh, penetrated my soul and let me wake up to uh, the existence of God. Hmm. And you know, these days, I think, with the headlines and the the world events we've lived with for the for the past six years, um, sometimes people buy the Quran to to try to understand Islam. And you know, my understanding from my conversations with Muslims is that, as you say, that's a very tricky thing. First of all, to pick up an English translation of Quran and and then to know where to begin or how to read it. And I think often what people um, you know, sometimes when people in this culture pick up the Quran and just start reading, they find passages that are very upsetting, bewildering, and foreign. Um, I mean, do you think it was something about the state of mind with which we, you picked up the Quran and started reading? Do you think it was this image you had in your mind of these these people of character that shaped what you were hearing? I mean, how do you explain that kind of discrepancy? Uh, I think to some extent I was protected from... Uh, the immediate negative associations because of the time I was living in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was after the Iranian Revolution, so we had that uh, that in the news. Um, but I wasn't particularly aware of it um, or very attuned to it. I, I wasn't someone who was that interested in political events, although right. I was interested in global affairs, but maybe more at a you know at a different kind of level. 
So to some extent, I think I was protected from those immediate negative associations. And um, so perhaps I could read it with fresher eyes or a bit more of an open mind. Mm-hmm. And somehow I, I, at that point, I realized that even when the Quran was addressing uh, specific communities, whether it's the, you know, the Arab Bedouin who are criticized for um, a certain kind of hypocrisy and belief or superficiality of belief, or when it was addressing the people of the book and Christians and Jews, right. I realized that, that, the, that this was primarily a message for every human being, that, that these may be particular instances of different kinds of ungratitude towards God or, or disobedience, but I wasn't reading it to understand what the message was for those people. I was reading it to understand what the message was for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where many people who approach the Quran get confused because it is it is both particular and universal. Um, the Quran addresses s- specific historical communities, but in that... Um, Address. There is also a deeper message that is for every person. So for the, for the uh, let's say the, uh, the Arab Bedouin in all of us who tends to be <laughs> uh, superficial at times. That's what the Quran is addressing. And so somehow I, I seem to be able to to get that message. And and maybe I was just um, maybe focused so much on myself that that at that point, that's all I cared about was how it it reflected on me and the state of my soul. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, I also think it is interesting. I mean, you were also reading it, imagining these people of great dignity and kindness who you knew, whereas sometimes now people might pick up the Quran with these headlines of violence, right? Oh, that's a a good point. Uh And um, absolutely, you can't um, you know, we are in our historical time, and and it's impossible for us to divest ourselves of these images mm-hmm. that we have that are real images and real people um, who are creating the background for how we read the Quran and, and hear anything about Islam. Mm-hmm. It, it's, but it is important to realize how influenced we are in by those images, even, even people who are seeking to understand. And you know, just, and again, just stick with your um, your sense of the spirituality, your experience of Islamic spirituality. Um, you've also spoken in other interviews about how you experience bowing and prostration that's involved in Muslim prayer to be um, something very enlivening and important. Can you say something about that? What that means to you? I was really surprised the first time I prayed, and and as a Muslim or prayed as a Muslim, in a Muslim prayer. I had I was not a Muslim at that time. I was just uh, starting to study the Quran and, and study some Arabic so I could um, have some sense of, of the scripture. And, uh, you know, the people who were teaching me said, well, you know, do you want to join us in prayer? I said, well, okay, I don't know how to do it. They said, oh, just follow, follow mm-hmm. along with us. And... Um, so I did, and of course, you know, it feels uh, in, in, at first very awkward. You're, you're looking, trying to see what they're doing. These movements are, are different. But as soon as I prostrated and, and had my, my head to the ground and felt that sense of 
connection with the earth, um, of blocking everything out because when you're prostrating, you, you don't see anything around you. Um, and so really it is the words that you're saying in your mind, glorifying God. Um, it was uh, such a profound moment for me, and I, I felt this such a um, sense of holistic uh, connection to God. I mean, it's a full body, a full connection. body connection, <laughs> right? Right. You know, and uh, and that was really extraordinary. And and I I continue to look at this prayer, the ritual prayer, as such a gift mm-hmm. um, um, for for us, for those of us who who have the the uh, uh, privilege of having learned it and and practice it. You know, I've thought in my own conversations these past years with Muslims that another piece of this um, way of living and um, being a person of faith that Westerners, I mean, people in American culture, whether they're Christian or not, this is a Christian-influenced culture, right? And right. and one <clears throat> premise that we kind of live with um, unselfconsciously is that faith is a matter of what you believe, Um when in fact that's not really how it functions um, for Muslims, also I don't think for Jews in, in you know many faiths, but that it is, as you say, this kind of full body experience that sometimes is hard to articulate into words. Is that? Yes, and it's not. It's not even just a question of um, doing that in in a house of worship. Mm-hmm. The Quran says mm-hmm. that the whole earth has been made for us uh, a masjid, a place of prostration. So the idea that um, sacred space is created by the individual. It's not so much about a particular location, but the action that you do, you know, I think this is a kind of existential definition of Islam, but, you know, what you do creates the sacred time and space. So as as whether it is prayer, um, that ritual prayer, or carrying around, you know, our, our having our encounters with people, giving them, imbuing them with this sense of meaning, um, the law that governs us, and by law I mean from from the ethics of interacting with our neighbor and the stranger on the street. That's mm-hmm. that you know that broader sense of law about daily and behavior. Kind of. Exactly moment the fact moment. that the fact that the Prophet Muhammad uh, taught us that we should greet people with a smile. So that greeting itself is part of what it means to um, be subject yourself to God's law. So you're creating that sacred space in that interaction, smiling in someone's face, letting them um, be at ease with you and comfortable in that initial encounter. So really, it it is. To be a Muslim, yes, means believing in certain things, but those beliefs um, are embodied in in all sorts of actions, and that's the only thing that we can judge. We can't judge um, the depth of someone's belief um, or even our own in many cases, but we Mm -hmm. can monitor and, and try to improve our encounters and our actions to the point that we feel um, um, that there is less of a disconnect between what we say we believe and, and how we are in the world. Mm-hmm. And here you are in 2007, sorry, 
Um, in 2007, you are the first woman, the first non-immigrant, and the first convert to lead the Islamic Society of North America. And, you know, I wonder, and, and to lead it in a tumultuous time, wh- which, um, you know, history may look back on this time 100 years from now as a, as a moment of, of great crisis and also perhaps a moment of great of a, as a great turning point in one direction or the other for Islam and for the world. Um, I, and you must think about this responsibility that you have, the, the gravity of your position. And I, I just wonder if you, when you look back at your life, I mean, your early life, you've, um, your upbringing, um, how you came to Islam, I mean, <laughs> what, what, where do you see what prepared you for this, for this destiny that you, that you have well, um, I, I don't. I don't think anything could have prepared me for this. I was the other day. I was. I said to my husband. I said, "How did I? Can you believe that I'm the one who's supposed to be doing this job? I mean, how did it come to this?" Um, but that is. I mean, that's why we we have to say that God has His plan and and we have our plan. I think that's the first thing that my West Africans. My West African friends taught me is Allah wa mashafan. God has planned, and and He will do what what He wants, mm-hmm. um, and that is uh, how how I look at it. And I look back and I say, well, you know, there are things that have prepared me for this. The fact that I grew up in a large family with four brothers, being the <laughs> six of seven children, okay. and uh, you know, always at the bottom of a, a headlock or a, a pile on. Um, so learning to be uh, maybe calm under <laughs> situations right. of, of stress and conflict certainly helped. Um, you know, many things. And, and uh, the fact that I, I was uh, born into a Catholic family, lived in that community, and am able to appreciate what uh, Catholic schools gave me um, in terms of an education and a, a vision of social justice that certainly the the nuns in my community had means that although I am a Muslim now and I've been Muslim almost all of my adult life, um, I I can see the the profound wisdom uh, in in Catholicism and the depth of that tradition, so that. Uh, you know, people talk about my ability to bridge different communities. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's not even so much a bridge as as really being able to understand and place myself uh, in that community and appreciate well, you sort of come from uh, both what worlds. it has to offer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel this, this bifurcation. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's part of me and it will always be part of me. And I, I see that my my job at this time more than anything is to try to make those connections find those connections focus on our commonalities and find a way to um, negotiate uh, our differences in a way that is that will not only not lead to conflict but lead to growth as individuals and as communities mm-hmm. because the you know the reason there are differences and including religious differences and different religious communities is not simply to see whether we can all get along right. but 
so that we can learn something about ourselves through the other community. And that's really... And that is also a piece of Islamic (coughs) theology, in fact, or Quranic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The Quran says that, but so often we forget that, Mm -hmm. and we're we're so focused on on maybe not... uh, um, not hurting each other or just trying to keep the peace that we don't really benefit from those differences so that we can grow. And, and I think that's where we mo- need to move um, in our engagement with, uh, with each other. Can you give me um, a specific example of an issue or a story, an encounter that comes to mind when you, when you talk about that challenge? I mean, how has that been embodied for you most recently? Does something come to mind? Well, I'd say that since certainly since I came um, to teach at Hartford Seminary in Connecticut, I've learned a lot from my colleagues uh, about how their traditions, primarily Christian traditions, have been able to or have struggled with negotiating you know, modernity. Um, mm-hmm. Dealing with a uh, you know the modern nation state, what does it mean to be um, uh, for a religious community to be part of of civil society, to be engaged, loyal, committed, and at the same time um, fulfilling its moral responsibility to uh, to improve society, include including to um, address those issues of abuse of power and injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, that, it's not an easy balance, and I'm not saying that anyone you know, has gotten that balance perfectly, but I, I, I do feel that, that I've learned from um, my colleagues and, and uh, my encounters with uh, American Christian communities uh, to see how, how the Muslim community can... Um, struggle with those issues and, and develop its own um, approach to these issues. And I think that, that that struggle with abusive power is something that religious traditions grapple with both within their, their, their communities and tradition and in the world, in, in the secular world. A- absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be you know, quite demoralizing when you're, when you're working on both fronts. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, to that extent, I think it is helpful to find some solidarity, solidarity and solace in other communities that are facing them. Mm-hmm. So whether it has to do with, um, you know, when I look at the Catholic Church and I see their struggle with uh, clergy sex abuse, when I see the struggle with, um, uh, you know, defining the, the, the role of women in the church and authority, uh, and I look at, at my community and see uh, the role of the imam in the community, the mm-hmm. significance of that role in the United States. What does that mean for the rest of the congregation? What does it mean for women? Um, uh, it's helpful to me um, to see some of the, the discussions and um, solutions that have been developed in other communities. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting vantage point you have because the Catholic Church is um, I suppose, well, it's obviously one of the very most important expressions of Christianity, most prominent, and and also the place where the discussion about women, I suppose, um, most closely mirrors 
some of the discussion that's also taking place in Islam. Although, it, I mean, it's very different. The forms are different. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, right. Uh, um, <laughs> and on the other end, I would say that uh, American, uh, um, more conservative Protestant communities have made me think deeply about the relationship of religion and the state. Because hmm. uh, on the one hand, you find um, that many of the Christian evangelical communities and more conservative Protestant communities have a discourse of of um, disengagement from the state or not wanting the state to intervene. For example, they they resort to often to homeschooling mm-hmm. so they can um, control that environment or shape that environment and the development of their children. But on the other hand, uh, often want to intervene in the lives of other citizens in the area of abortion and um, and of uh, life issues. And so that makes me more attuned to the uh, challenges that Muslims face in trying to live out our ethics mm-hmm. and um, um, live up to, you know, shape our own community in uh, American society. You know, I want to ask you, a couple of weeks ago I interviewed someone named Douglas Johnston who is a foreign policy expert and diplomat and is doing a lot of work in kind of what is preventive diplomacy. Um, also with, um, I don't know, with madrasa teachers in Pakistan and in, in many uh, conflicts that have some kind of Muslim interface. And he's an observation he's made, and I'm curious about how you would respond to this, is that... Um, you know, simply put, that Americans speak the language of separation when they think about public and private life, faith and um, public life, and that Muslims speak a language of integration. Um, And, I mean, I wonder how you um, approach that coming, as we've said, having having kind of both worlds and both sensibilities in as part of your experience and identity. Well, I don't know. I think it's hard to make huge generalizations mm-hmm. about Americans and, and Muslims. Uh, the experiences are so different. Uh, Americans may speak about a separation, but how does that really work itself out? Um, well, I mean, the example you just gave points to some ambiguity <laughs> and some tension mm-hmm. yeah. in the way that's lived. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's it's not easy. We, I, I think that... The real issue, what I see as the real issue, is the extent to which um, uh, the authority of the state in the 20th century has has um, increased to such a level. The you know hegemony of the modern nation state Mm -hmm. is so profound and extensive that. Everyone seems to think that the only, re- you know, the only way to solve this is to kind of struggle over who has control over that because it is so intrusive, mm-hmm. whether it has to do with public education or health care and the, and the policies that the government will give for that or um, just uh, um, uh, accessing the natural resources mm-hmm. that ordinary people are, are, you know, have in the ground underneath them and around them. And and so I think this is why the discussion of what is the role between religion and the state has was jacked up to such a high level in the 20th century 
And I think what we need to do in this century is to think uh, about the ways to to maybe lessen that degree of um, uh, of involvement and intervention and disruption of people's lives. You know, push the authority to lower levels. Mm-hmm. At the same time, making sure that the individual human rights individual human rights are protected because what what happens is that you don't want to go back to a completely parochial model uh, you know pre 20th century where all it meant is that you had the you know they had the tyranny of the of the local leader right um, and and very often when the state intervened it was to try to alleviate some of that local tyranny but the solution isn't for the state to intervene at every level. I think what we need is real democracy, is real democracy in politics and in religion where ordinary people have control over who is representing them, whether that is who is, is heading the mosque or who is heading their, uh, uh, their regional government. And... Um and what I also think you're describing is is lessening some of that authority, also kind of putting it in its place. I mean, one thing I think is happening with globalization, and I see you just I can imagine this as being a byproduct, is also just people exerting influence in other ways than being in government. And in ha- Right. And I, I think, I mean, I, I don't see globalization as a uh, complete ill. I know many there are many people who, who look at globalization as something, a negative, but I see great benefits to globalization um, as long as there are not barriers put on to accessing, right. uh, you know, that ordinary people also have access to the technology that and, that and the mechanisms. And and what you see is, I mean, if I could give, if I just focus on the example of of Muslim women, mm-hmm. um, I see that that globalization has helped Muslim women in many ways, in terms of giving them access to information about what Muslim women in other parts of the world are doing, mm-hmm. and w- because one of the problems that that we have is that local culture is so often conflated with with religion, religious norms. And whether it has to do with, uh, you know, so-called honor killing or um, uh, marriage without consent, um, all of those issues, these are cultural practices that, that, you know, local authorities or people in power will tend to conflate with Islam and say, well, you know, this is this is our culture. This is our tradition, mm-hmm. um, as if they're all one thing. And what what the internet, what uh, the availability of information about what's going on in other communities does is it gives that window for women to say, you know what, women in other parts of the Muslim world are are do not experience things this way. They are given uh, rights that we don't have. And m- as much as the information, there's that feeling of solidarity, mm-hmm. um, that feeling of not being alone in this struggle. I um, I was really moved by uh, the um, Mukhtar Mai's book, you know, Mukhtar Mai, the Pakistani woman who was uh, brutally gang-raped by mm-hmm. um, 
you know, the strong tribe of her village. And, and in her book, she talks about how, you know, when she was, um, she went to this international conference. I mean, not everything was good about it. But one thing that, that amazed her and gave her some strength and energy was to realize that women in many other parts of the world were also facing struggles, not exactly the same. I mean, hmm. what what's amazing is that the kinds of oppression that they were experiencing was different from hers, but it was structurally the same in terms of, you know, someone saying in a very authoritarian way, this is Islam, this is your religion, this is your culture, we have to do it this way. Right. Um, I'd like to talk about women and Islam, and um, you, um, you wear um, the hijab, as a choice, and it is a choice. And I wonder when you decided to do that and what that means for you. Well, I, I um, was convinced um, by those who were teaching me about Islam early on that uh, a head covering for women is part of um, what is required in, in Islamic law. Uh, I was not convinced of the reasons for it. I mean, people talked about, uh, you know, society and gender mixing and all these kind of things. So when I first heard about that, I said, well, that didn't make much sense to me. But I did it as an act of obedience. And once I started wearing it, I did notice the benefit in terms of being treated in a more, I would say, uh, professional manner hmm. by even you know those people who I'd known earlier, whether hmm. they were professors or others, that I was surprised at the way that that the kind of um, uh, you know language that I'd become so used to with sexual innuendo and I mean not you know I wasn't around people who were. Uh, no, but the kind of thing women vulgar, live with on streets just, in major cities, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and even just just talking with people at work mm-hmm. or at school, all, how many jokes and things have have this sexual innuendo? How that kind of just dropped away, hmm. and and I hadn't been aware of it, you know, really aware how pervasive it was till I started wearing hijab, and suddenly, you know, there is this sense people get when they see a, a Muslim woman in hijab that they they should maybe behave a little bit differently. <laughs> Um, and I felt that, you know, an advantage, and I was surprised at that. It doesn't mean it's not difficult sometimes. I mean, it is difficult at times, and it does present its own challenges. But I do it because I am convinced that it is something part of um, of what's required of me. But more than the social dynamics, I would say, for me, it has a spiritual benefit and um, you know, it's interesting. I'm. I was in my. I was teaching a class earlier this week, and I have a uh, an African uh, priest in my class, and he was talking about how in in African Christianity, still um, women and even men will will feel that some some gesture of covering yes. uh, is important in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. That when you're in the presence of the sacred. Uh, whether it is the Eucharist or in the church or um, approaching the the Bible, that this idea that that you uh, cover um, in the presence of the sacred and, and you find I that impulse think, in Judaism as well, right? Mm-hmm. And and for me, what 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 that resonated with me is that 
You know, Islam doesn't have a uh, a clergy that right. each Muslim needs to be responsible for his or her her own ritual life, so that when the time for prayer comes, you know, and I'm alone, I need to be my own imam. I need to uh, organize myself and organize the prayer and lead my myself in prayer to conduct that ritual myself. And as I mentioned earlier, the whole earth is a mosque for us. The whole of creation is sacred. So the fact that I, I wear this covering throughout the day to me also symbolizes my acknowledgement that there is no place uh, where I am that is devoid of the presence of the sacred. Hmm. And, um, you know, you wrote an essay with this title, Discovering, Not Uncovering the Spirituality of Muslim Women. I, I wonder what that, what that phrase evokes for you, what you mean by that, what you want to point at. Well, there is such a, um, uh, a topoi uh, and, uh, of uncovering, you know, uncovering or unveiling right. <laughs> behind the veil, under the veil, yeah. beneath the veil, you know, this kind of voyeuristic metaphor that, mm-hmm. that really uh, grates on me um, as if we will really find out what this, you know, what is beneath this. And, and there's something almost insidious about it. What are they hiding? What are Muslims hiding, mm-hmm. you know, behind this veil? And what I wanted to say is it's not about, um, uh, you know, concealing something that needs to be discovered. It is, a, it is a way of being in the world that represents something in itself. And so, I, you know, I'm hoping that we can get away from some of these voyeuristic or orientalistic metaphors that, that seem to reinforce this notion that Islam is so exotic, um, foreign, and uh, devious uh, hmm. because you're not, you're not really getting what you think you're getting. Right. Um, you are not an uh, uncontroversial figure f- for Islamic women <clears throat> or for Islamic men. Um, there's a lot of energy right now w- within Islamic, uh, uh, among Islamic women, Muslim women, um, in many places, but in this country as well. Um, there are women in places like San Francisco and Virginia and New York who are trying to remove divisions between men and women in worship. Um, I, I think that when I, when I read your writing on these subjects, which are complicated, I, I do sense that you, you think that the, that the questions which um, outsiders, which, which the media or non-Muslims tend to ask in this culture about what that means and what the issues are for women are not the right questions. I mean, I want I want to ask you what what questions would you like to uh, others to pose to understand this energy right now and its possibilities? Um, or or positive, maybe what I'm asking is what where would you like to start in responding to that curiosity and those questions? Well, it's natural that that people try to understand new phenomenon according to the categories they have and the experiences they have. Um, but we have to get beyond that. Um, when when uh, 
people look at the the idea of Muslim women as religious leaders, they immediately uh, make an association with uh, ordination. Right. And and the kind of questions they ask is, you know, basically what they're asking is, can Muslim women be ordained? And what I what I've tried to do specifically in uh, in my article, can a woman be an imam? Is to say, look, um, let's deconstruct this issue and see what's really going on. And and what we have to do first is understand what it means to be an imam. And is that something that is fluid? That is um, that can depend on the situation. It's relative to the time, to the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, even to the individuals in the room, and and this is my goal is to is to dig a li- little deeper, to question our assumptions uh, about the the um, what is necessary in terms specifically of our institutions. Um, I'm I'm very interested in religious leadership and in what is happening on the ground because no matter what we do at the national level, the reality is. That when someone wants some spiritual counseling uh, to a sense of uh, religious community, they're going to the local mosque. Right. That currently in most communities is not responding to those needs. Okay. And and my uh, question is, before we say, you know, can we just sort of plop a woman in the position that the man is currently occupying? Let's have a look at that position. Have we constructed it in a way that is helpful for men or women, hmm. for the community at large? And and what is the what is the responsibility for all of the people in the community to take some responsibility um, for their own for their own uh, the way they constitute their community? I, I'm I'm all for decentralization of authority. At the same time, there need to be people who are specialized in certain fields. There are certain fields of knowledge in Islamic law and in other sciences that require years of study. So specialization, um, resorting to specialists is fine, but in terms of spiritual and religious authority, that needs to be pushed back onto each one of us and our uh, the positions that we have in the community mm-hmm. need to reflect that. I mean, what is... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I've got a bad throat today. What is your understanding of the... of of what, um, at the essence of Islam, what the core of Islam um, has to say about women and worship and and leadership? I mean, is there a body of essential teachings on that? There, there are certainly guidelines. Um, at the basic level and the fundamental level is the absolute, complete spiritual equality of men and women. That is clear from the Quran. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, well, what about uh, positions of leadership? And the uh, ruling in uh, Islamic law is that anything is permissible unless there is an explicit... Um, uh, teaching that it's not permissible. Hmm. Um, and so we, we have to prove, uh, you know, if we want to say that there are limits, then we have to prove that. Um, so the, the, the real question is, 
are there any positions or roles that women um, are excluded from occupying? And, and my argument is that as a general rule, no. Um, on a relative level or relational level, in some cases, uh, yes. Just as in some situations, a man can't um, take a, a certain position of authority depending on hmm. sort of who the individuals are in that room. And what I mean by that is, can a woman be an imam? Yes, an imam is the leader of, of prayer. And a woman can and women have been leaders of congregations. Those are all female congregations. And there also uh, is good evidence that women have led their families in, in mm -hmm. uh, congregational prayer. The question is, in a public setting that does not, that includes non-family um, members, you know, males who are non-family members, then is, uh, um, should she take leadership? And that's really the, you know, the one issue where uh, there's a lot of debate right now. The, the majority view at this point is that, no, she shouldn't. Um, take that, that leadership when there are non-related uh, males in the congregation. Mm -hmm. um, there are others who, who look at it a different way. Um, but, you know, we should, my, my point is that we should then look and say, well, are there certain situations where it would be improper for a man to lead? Mm -hmm. And certainly when we, when we look at something like, I, I'm, I'm always intrigued when I, I, I go to communities I've been to some communities on the uh, prayer, the Eid prayer, which is, you know, the annual, there are two Eids, two uh, um, holidays a year that are the major Islamic holidays. And sometimes the way the community is set up is that there are so many people who come to that prayer that um, there may be two different halls that the prayer is being held in simultaneously. Right. And I've actually been to a prayer where the whole hall was women yet they sent a man to lead those women in prayer. And I thought to myself, should that man really be in this room with a thousand women? And right. is that, you know, even in terms of the, the kind of gender sensitivities of Islam, wouldn't it be better to appoint a woman to lead that congregation? Um, so um, I'm, I'm not necessarily giving any answers here, right. but I'm saying that we need to start thinking about these, these issues. And, I mean, you are... Um, a diplomat, and that comes through very clearly, and that's that's why that's one of the answers to the that question you asked your husband. You said the other day, "Why are you doing this?" I mean, you are able to speak to many people. You also have a high regard for the mm, what you call the conservative um, approach to tradition that Islam takes. Um, you've also talked about um, how, because of that, it's important for modern Muslim women. To um, to find the archaeology of women within the tradition, um, say something about that task, which which I sense is something that you're engaged in. Well, let me let me say why it's important to to engage in in a dialogue with tradition. Um, my my point is that tradition is not in itself a you know a sacred object, but what it does is it helps us purify our, our intentions. And what I mean by that is the goal of spirituality is to discern um, what is God's will. And it's very easy for us to, um, 
to mistake our own desires and wishes for God's will. Uh, It's the constant spiritual battle and struggle within ourselves to try to silence our own desires and our selfishness and self-centeredness and open ourselves to what God is asking us to do. What engaging in tradition does is it helps us um, reflect on those those impulses that we have that may be particularly uh, strong and loud because of the time that we live in. Hmm. Um, so when we engage in tradition and we see how Muslims in different times have lived, what kind of responses they've had, we're able to, uh, comparing that with our own priorities and our own burning questions, we're able to say, hmm, you know, maybe this is so important to me because of the particular age I live in. And that may be good. I mean, it may be the, the, you know, the, the, the necessity of the time I live in. But on the other hand, I may be giving it disproportionate attention. Mm. And so that's why from a spiritual perspective, I believe it's important to engage in tradition. And one of the, the challenges for scholars is to find a, an accurate representation of what really happened. Because we, we, you know, how do we do that? We look back primarily through books, mm-hmm. and and books don't necessarily reflect books all that happened. Books are written by someone, right? Right mm-hmm. in a society, and so it requires a more subtle approach. We have to we have to dig deeper. We have to look for more sources. We have to try to um, to see if there are some some gaps that. You know, even the silences might might teach us something and indicate something to us. But um, frankly, the the goal of of, of you know digging up <laughs> those great women of the past That's is that not that difficult. Really, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are all sorts of stories out there that have not been told, and and they're right there on on the surface of those books. Um, we can tell them, and uh, we can revive them, and they can teach us a lot. So let's at least do that—that that initial work. And I am, um, you know, I, I feel really happy about the scholarship that's been um, uh, under undertaken by uh, many of the younger scholars in the last decade or so mm. that are showing us all of the possibilities that are there the historical options that have been available to Muslim communities that we forgot about. Um, You know, and something that distinguishes Islam from some of the other major traditions is that the prophet had women in his life, (laughs) that he was married, that he had daughters, um, and he had a long marriage to the mother of his children and then other marriages when he was a political leader. Um, I mean... Is that meaningful for you as you as you wrestle with these kinds of questions? It, it is, and and the Prophet Muhammad's relationships with women are very empowering to women because he loved women. He loved the women in his life. Um, he was always praising them and praising them to others in a public way. Um, he he. He made a point of showing them um, honor and dignity, and and that is a great uh, lesson for us, uh, because in it, somehow Muslim society became um, 
you know, imbued with this notion that, uh, like they used to say about children, you know, women should be <laughs> not even seen and not heard. Right. Uh, that that and that you don't even that a man wouldn't even talk about the women in his life. That that's sort of, you know, private. And when women belong to this, um, this uh, you know, area that of life that just is unknown and unheard. Mm-hmm. Historically, that's not even true, but that was kind of the narrative, normative narrative that was passed down, and it's just so contrary to the the Prophet Muhammad's own life. And um, I do I do think that that, however, for many Christians, this presents a problem because Christianity, even you know, even Protestant Christianity after Luther, that tried to um, develop a new appreciation for women and, and sexuality in the family, at least. I mean, sexuality within the family still, I believe, has has uh, a problem with um, with human sexuality and sensuality uh, in a religious context. Well, it's not there to find in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. So, I mean, in strong contrast to what you just described um, in the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Right. So mm-hmm. that even even those Christians who would uh, perhaps praise married life on the part of ordinary believers would feel that that but Jesus um, is superior because he was removed from mm-hmm. from this part. You know, these things. So there's a kind of uh, mixed message there about what well, what do we really think about this kind of relationship, and um, you know it's just so uh, uh, different than than how Muslims look at at these things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'd like to talk to you about um, something that you've called this double bind that. Muslims perhaps were in before September 11th, 2001, that ha- but has been very much exacerbated by events following that. And I, I think this also relates to to women, as you're talking about looking around the world at Muslim women, but it's it's about much lar- other issues as well. Um, let me just, I want to read something that you wrote, um, and I think it must have been maybe in 2002. I don't have the date here. Um Let me state clearly, I, as an American Muslim leader, denounce not only suicide bombers and the Taliban, but those leaders of other Muslim states who thwart democracy, repress women, use the Quran to justify un-Islamic behavior, and encourage violence. Um, Alas, these views are not only the province of a small group of terrorists or dictators. Too many rank-and-file Muslims, in their isolation and pessimism, have come to hold these self-destructive views as well. But you continued, the problem is that other Muslims may not listen to us, no matter how loud our voices. American Muslim leaders will be heard only if they are recognized as authentic interpreters of Islam among the global community. This will be very difficult to achieve because our legitimacy in the Muslim world is intimately linked with American foreign policy. Um, talk to me about this Line that you that not only you but but many um, North American Muslims have walked um, these last years. Well, I, I think it has become more difficult, and those uh, um, tensions that I spoke about have become far more pronounced. 
Um, it's interesting, especially in the wake of uh, uh, many of the things that have gone on in Europe, that many European governments now are looking to the American Muslim community as a kind of model Muslim community. Right. How could we, mm-hmm. you know, how could we teach them about how to be Muslims in the so-called West? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 in a pluralistic de- democratic right. culture. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. State Department has has even facilitated some delegations of American Muslims going to Europe and, um, you know, talking about our how we deal with these things and, and what kind of models we've developed. But um, do we have any authority? Um, it, it's, it's certainly true that there are those who look at us and say, well, you know, uh, either they think we're, we're being used by the government or they think that if we, if we are not completely in opposition to the policies of the government, and I mean out in the streets demonstrating that we have no moral credibility, mm. um, that we've kind of sold our our Islam for uh, uh, living a cushy lifestyle in America. You know, it's easy for us to say that democracy works when we experience the benefits of it, mm-hmm. um, uh, but what about the others? So it's a difficult uh, line to walk, but I I'm convinced that this is what we need to do, and it's our responsibility. I, there are many Muslims who would like us simply to condemn, you know, the United States government for its foreign policy, for its actions, but it's much more complicated than that. I mean, our role simply can't be one of opposition to any particular policy when we know, on the other hand, that many in the Muslim world need to understand um, uh, the benefits of democracy and the and the flaws in their own approach to politics which is confrontational oppositional and does not engage in the patient work of coalition building consensus building and conceding the rights of the other parties mm. so we can't you know place all the responsibility and see all the evil on one side, um, when there are Muslims in the world who who also need to get this message that their way, their approach to political power has not worked. Um, so it's not a question of preaching, but of of being honest about the uh, um, the options that are available to human beings in terms of political power in a pluralistic world. You um, spent some time in Afghanistan also at a young age. Was that after your conversion to Islam in your 20s maybe? or? Well, I was uh, – after I became a Muslim, mm-hmm. I, I was with uh, Afghan refugees, but right. I was in Pakistan. I never went to okay. Afghanistan. Um, okay. The uh, Soviets were still fighting in Afghanistan <laughs> at that time. Right. But uh, – I, w- I wonder how those, but you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan, those are places now that are intimately involved in American foreign policy and the and our struggle to come to terms with, with the new world we inhabit and the American place in that. Um, and I, I'm just curious about how your experience, your personal experiences there, or maybe also other. I know you you're traveling a great deal now. You are out in the world a lot. Um, 
other personal experiences you have also bring home this complexity to you and and some of the paradox that's involved right well when i was um when i was in pakistan i was living in peshawar at that time uh, no one knew where that place was now everyone knows where peshawar mm-hmm. is <laughs> um it was uh, an amazing, complicated place. Uh, everyone in the world was there trying to put their hand in this struggle and try to influence it one way or another, whether it was you know, the U.S. government with its many agencies or uh, Gulf states or individuals who had their own uh, dreams of what Afghanistan would be. And that was a great lesson for me um, to see uh, what the stakes were and how um, how ordinary people really suffered. I mean, how just the ordinary, everyday Afghan person was suffering under this, in the midst of this ideological battle and struggle. And it also showed to me that, that people have to take um, responsibility for their own lives. Uh, my best friend is, is Afghani, and she... Um, she worked with me in the camps, and she continues to be my friend until this day, and is very bitter about the fact that after the Soviets withdrew, that her own people were unable to um, make concessions to each other, that the different Afghan parties who had fought the war were unable to make peace with each other. And uh, she herself gave birth to her child in uh, the Kabul hospital with I think there were a few hundred missiles that were fired oh, fired into gosh. Kabul that night. She talks about giving birth under the bed oh. in the Kabul hospital. Mm. And, and you know, she said, look, you know, we fought the Soviets to get them out. This was now our country. And why could these, these men, these warring parties, our, our mujahideen, why could they not give something to each other um, so that there could be peace for our people. Instead, they, they were so intransigent, intransigent, each insisting on their way or the highway, that it led to civil war and then eventually to such chaos that the Taliban came in and took over. So um, I guess the lesson I learned from that is you can't just blame outside forces. You know, you can't just just say well, there are these powers who are intervening and putting pressure. Um, We have to, each of us, take responsibility individually and collectively for the welfare of our community. And um, yes, there will be be challenges. Sometimes there there will be, you know, like the Soviets coming and invading your country. But um, your first responsibility is to, is to, be generous with each other Mm. and to embrace the diversity that your own community has so that you can be strong enough to withstand these kind of challenges. You you have written also in these last years that you fault yourself yourself for not criticizing, not being critical enough of the Taliban in those years in Afghanistan, um, American Muslims perhaps, for not always speaking out about oppressive situations within Islam. And I mean, I wonder when you describe that complexity, even if it suggests that, let's say, the political role of the United States government is going to be a very complicated thing to get right, is there a special obligation that you as a fellow Muslim have for, um, 
I don't know, aiding, helping in those those internal dynamics you just described um, among other Muslims in Afghanistan, places like Afghanistan. Yeah, it's a really difficult balance, and I've Mm -hmm. I've struggled with um, um, prioritizing our activities because of the Islamic Society of North America. Yeah, and and as an individual in my writing and speaking and. Mm I mean, you can't simply be responding to negative actions all the time. You, you can't, uh, you know, only uh, put all your resources in. I condemn this. I condemn that. Um, to that extent, I think that perhaps when I wrote that, I was, you know, really feeling the the tragedy of the moment and um, was sincere in that. But realistically. Um, when I when I think about what is the the most effective way to make change, I think that it's better for us to put our energies first of all in getting our own house in order, mm-hmm. institutionally, organizationally, so that we can be that model, we can be that example, whether it is to, you know, Muslim minorities in Europe or elsewhere, but then also into developing the kind of uh, intellectual approaches, academic work, papers um, that can then, in this globalized world, be disseminated quickly and easily to other communities. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, we need, we need, and, and I, I wish uh, people outside of our community would understand this, that we could stand you know, on the soapbox from morning to night and say, I condemn this, I condemn that. Right. Um, but would it, you know, it wouldn't have the kind of impact that uh, our slow, you know, much slower, more patient work of building a a a, a well functioning model American Muslim community will hmm. have. Hmm. I just want to. Um, we got started a little late. I have a few more questions. I just want to ask and make sure at the other end that we can keep going a, a little bit after. Um, Let's see, it's 12 o'clock your time, right? Can you stay a few more minutes after that? I'm fine. Okay. It, um, I wonder, Michael, can you, do you know if the engineer is okay with that? Do we have the studio? That's is that all right? Okay, great. Um, because whatever we don't use here on the air, we'll be able to put on the website. And I'm, this is a fantastic conversation. Um, okay. Um, okay, so I'm going to, let me just ask you a couple of hard questions about, um, there, there have been, in these years, uh, criticisms, accusations that there are extremist groups who fund the Islamic Society of North America. Um, I mean, there have been lots of accusations <laughs> in these last years. I, I don't know. What is your what is your response to that? Um, well, I mean, the people who make those accusations need to need to prove it. Um, the uh, there actually are not a lot of accusations. There's there is uh, um, a certain group that has many publications and kind of links their different websites and and tries to discredit not just any Muslim organization but anyone who um, who advocates for the rights of Muslims. Um, even you know if you look at uh, campuswatch.org, for example, all sorts of academics who who aren't Muslim. Who are attacked and accused of, 
being apologists for Wahhabis or Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. or you know Muslim extremists. So this is part of a of a well organized smear campaign that's been going on for years. And uh, uh, I'm not concerned about it because uh, if if there was any truth to it. Um, the U.S. government would have closed us down a long time ago. Okay. And I want to ask you about um, anti-Semitism um, within Islamic communities. I, I, and I, I mean, I, I clearly don't read everything that's said or written. I, I haven't heard the Islamic community in the United States talking about anti-Semitism very much. Clearly, the is- Israeli-Palestinian crisis is a is a core crisis of our time for Muslims um, as for others. Mm, but this this specter of anti-Semitism, which rears its head um, in Muslim cultures, I, I, I just, I, I've never heard a kind of um, American Muslim response to that. Um, it, is that something that you grapple with within this community? Well, I don't... F- Honestly, I don't see a lot of anti-Semitism in the American Muslim community. Um, there is uh, uh, certainly a lot of uh, passion about the rights of the Palestinians, um, and uh, that there's a lot of activism around that. Um, but in terms of anti-Semitism, honestly, I don't see it as a as a major problem. Um, in the American Muslim community, unlike in in other parts of the Muslim world, right. for us again, I mean, for the Islamic Society of North America, our approach is to uh, more than anything engage in positive actions with the Jewish community to demonstrate, you know, rather than just say we condemn anti-Semitism, okay. to demonstrate our uh, sense of of brotherhood with uh, with Jewish people on all sorts of issues. So we have many interfaith initiatives, um, other social justice initiatives that we uh, engage in with uh, Jewish people. We have um, Jewish leaders speak at our conferences and conventions, uh, you know, in a very public way. And that normalizes it to the extent that anyone who's, who thinks otherwise would be, um, you know, would be marginalized. But there are times when you do have to speak out. For example, when um, Ahmadinejad had this uh, Holocaust denial conference, right. it was just so outrageous and so offensive that um, we had to do something. And um, the vice president of the Islamic Society of North America, Imam Muhammad Majid, who is the imam of one of the largest communities in Virginia, actually delayed his hedge trip his pilgrimage trip by a day to take a delegation of American Muslims to the Holocaust Museum Hmm. to witness to the reality of that terrible human tragedy and to testify that American Muslims um, share in in the horror and sadness of of humanity uh, about what happened there. Okay. Um... I just a personal question. I wonder what your husband and your children think about this role you have now. Well, I, I before I uh, accepted um, the nomination for president, and before I accepted the nomination for vice president of the Islamic Society of North America, I consulted with my children and my husband because I knew it would impact their lives. 
and uh, that it would make me more busy, uh, away from home more often. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I asked them what they thought about it. And in each case, they they urged me to do it. They felt that um, it was my responsibility, that uh, there are great needs that need that um, that I could help meet and that they were willing to, you know, to chip in more. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is a, uh, you know, an, an Arab Muslim uh, who came to North America in his late 20s, uh, traditionally raised, and he is probably the most supportive husband you could find on the mm-hmm. face of this earth. Uh, he He is the primary cook in my household. He <laughs> takes care of my kids' homework. He um, um, He's just so supportive uh, because he feels that, that the Muslim community generally and Muslim women specifically need someone who's, who's advocating for, th- for their needs. And so I, I um, you know, really pray that God will bless him for his sacrifice Hmm. Um, uh, and also, well, you know, that my children will benefit from it in, in some way as well. You know, I've read, um, I think this was from the your national convention last year, and someone who was at the convention, a Muslim, a college student actually, saying about of you, she is a visible reputation of, refutation of stereotypes. Um, how are you greeted when you travel around the world by Muslims, do do Muslims in other parts of the world are they following your place as a as a leading figure in the American Muslim community with interest and seeing you as a role model as well? It it has um, I guess been a pleasant surprise how well um, my um, election has been received. Uh, uh, by Muslims, really throughout the world, um, you know, I can't I can't speak to all places, and I'm sure there are those who think that it's a travesty. But uh, from um, you know the the ambassador of Saudi Arabia writing me a, um, a personal note congratulating me on this, and and really uh, you know expressing his his feeling that this is a good thing for for Muslims. Um, to uh, former president of Iran, President Khatami, uh, meeting with me and you know expressing with with great respect and um, uh, you know a sincere sense of of support for uh, the views that that I express about uh, Muslims, including Muslim women. Um, it has been a, a, a pleasant surprise and makes me hopeful, hmm. makes me very hopeful that we are not uh, a community that is in any way, uh, you know, deviating from what the majority of Muslims in the world want, but that we have the means to uh, maybe fulfill their wishes in many ways. Hmm. Okay. I, I think this is my last question. I've kept you a long time, but <laughs> you... Um, You've told a story about your husband, who, as you said, was born in Egypt, who you met, I, I believe, when you were working with the Afghan refugees in Pakistan. 
um, describing to you a Muslim woman he admired for her intelligence and eloquence and generosity. Um, and then you met her, and, and there was a surprise in that, right? That um, Right. She's, uh, when I met her, I, I saw that she fully covers um, her face, her whole body, um, so that you couldn't see any part of her, yet I had created such an image of her in my mind based on the qualities and characteristics that my husband so admired that I guess that, that taught me something about the how important as, as a Westerner images were to me and sort of, you know, to what extent someone's uh, physical appearance um, embodied who they were in my mind, but clearly it wasn't for him. And, you know, I interviewed you uh, once before in 2002, not that long after September 11th, and I asked you a question I'd been wanting to ask someone bluntly. I asked you, um, you know, I said that for many people, many people had become aware of Islam for the first time through that act of very dramatic violence. And I asked you where non... And then and we're wanting now to understand what Islam was about. Um, and I asked you where non-Muslims should look, um, to, could look to find images as vivid as those images of, um, you know, towers crashing to the ground, airplanes flying into buildings. And you said... Um, they, there, there probably won't be those dramatic images, but the, that we have to train our eyes on ordinary Muslims. I, I thought of that again when I was reading this story you tell about this woman, because you, you finished this essay by saying, he knew her by her actions, by the effects she left on other people. We seem to make the mistake of thinking that seeing means knowing, and that the more exposed a person is, the more important they are. <laughs> And I don't know, I'm just wondering if in this, in your answer to my question five years ago and in this essay you wrote more recently, if that is kind of a, um, if that kind of crystallizes some of your philosophy of being a Muslim in the post-9-11 world. Yeah, and, and to the extent that um, every day we have these dramatic images of uh, bombs blowing up in markets in Baghdad, fire and destruction and death, uh, I think I feel that way even more so. I mean, even if we we spent some time looking at the beautiful, beautiful image of three million Muslims in absolute peace and harmony, making the pilgrimage together to Mecca every year, which is such a profound image, still, um, could that really, you know... Uh, Outweigh these dale, this daily uh, bombardment of bombardments mm-hmm. that we that we get on TV. Um, we just have to try to get away from that to some extent and um, engage with individuals. And I, I'm saying that not not just because. Uh, I want people to have a different idea about Muslims, but I want Americans to feel hopeful, and there's a basis for hope. There is a reason to feel that we can get out of this mess and that we the future is not necessarily one of bleakness and conflict and violence, mm-hmm. but that there are 
millions and millions of Muslims who are engaged in good work. You know, people like Muhammad Yunus, who won the Nobel Prize this year mm -hmm. for the great work he's done with the Grameen Bank, and, and so many others, you know, and all the people he helped to who are just trying to build a better future for their families and, and in societies. So we need to look elsewhere so that we can feel hopeful and we won't give up in despair and just capitulate to this vision of an imminent apocalyptic violent ending to our, our earth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, thank you very much. I, it's wonderful to talk was, to you again. <laughs> it was great speaking with you again. Yeah. And, uh, uh, nice to take the time. Yeah, I'm glad you could take the time. And um, we will, um, I can't remember when we have this on the schedule, but it's soon, and you'll you'll know about that and have a CD. And if there are some questions we have, um, we might you might get those by email from Colleen Sheck. So thank you so much. Okay, okay. thank you. All right, take care. Yeah, you too, bye.